Welcome to Despirituality. We're very excited today to have a conversation about black history and the black church. Now, for some of you listening, you're going, what's the black church? Well, you're going to learn about that today and you're going to learn a lot about black history. But to me, black history is the narrative or story of different people's lives. And so let me begin by saying this. At some point in every day, I sit in the shadow of a canvas painting of a lighthouse painted in 1984 by my maternal grandmother, Pauline Edwards. Like my paternal grandmother, Celestine Ewell, she grew up suppressed and oppressed by the racism of the early 20th century. Like the movie Help, my grandmother, Pauline Edwards, absorbed the painful denigration of racism as a maid in the South being from Tennessee. But she had the spirit of, if you like Harry Potter, Dumbledore's Phoenix and rose from the ashes of racism to become a florist and with the determination to make sure her children and grandchildren would be college educated, faith infused and never, never controlled or crushed by the emotional, mental and spiritual and physical destructiveness of racism. My grandmother is black history and she was part of the black church. And even more than me, our guest today has an understanding of the power, resilience, and inspiration of black history and the black church. There are a lot of people out there today, some white, some black, some from various different ethnicities who comment on issues like Black Lives Matter or black history, but all too rarely do African-Americans who don't have a point to needle, but have a desire to educate, it's too rare that they get together. And today our guest is Daryl Reed. Daryl Reed's passion for proclaiming the gospel was fanned into flame while ministering to college students at Western Illinois University, where also he received a scholarship to play basketball. I'm a little jealous about that, but we'll get to that later. Upon entering the full-time ministry in 1990, Daryl and his wife, Sharon, have labored in many cities across the states, Ann Arbor and Detroit, Michigan, Chicago, Illinois, Los Angeles, California, Columbus, and Cincinnati, Ohio, and now in Washington, D.C. And if you saw me stumble there, that's because that's a lot of great cities to be able to live in. Since 2003, Daryl has served in the role of lead minister at D.C. Regional Christian Church, being the grandson of a Church of Christ preacher. That's right. I told you he had a lot more legacy than me. Being the grandson of a Church of Christ preacher and having been raised in the church, Daryl appreciates his deep roots within a restoration movement of churches that desire to advance New Testament Christianity. Daryl has served on several executive committees for Christian conferences and conventions, including vice president of the North American Christian Convention in 2014 and president of the Eastern Christian Conference in 2017. Since 2016, Daryl has been serving on the board of trustees at Mid-Atlantic Christian University, which is located in North Carolina. Daryl and his wife have been married for 32 years, and that's quite an accomplishment in and of itself. And they have three sons, and I'm aware of those three sons that they have. And those are some pretty powerful guys right there. And Daryl right now, I don't know if he wants me to tell you this, but he's working on a book and it's called the cloud, not the crowd. And when I think about my grandmother that I mentioned earlier, I think that she's somebody who kept her eyes on the cloud in order to overcome the crowd's racism. And so I want to welcome Daryl Reed. Thank you, Daryl, for being on deep spirituality and coming in here and helping my poor self talk about the black church and black history. Love it, my friend. You know, I love you, bro. And uh, so appreciate our connectivity and our relationship. You've been a very uh, integral part of the development of my personal faith. 
Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is our friendship that goes through the years and, and we haven't even been able to talk nearly as much as we wanted to the other day, a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, we talked and I could have stayed on that phone. If I hadn't had to go get my kids, I could have stayed on that phone for 24 hours. I think I wouldn't have even needed to drink or eat. Uh, it was just so, I mean, my mind was buzzing and you've done that before for me in conversations and particularly I can remember it's been a long time now. It's almost 20 years ago that you had a conversation with me and you opened my eyes and, and, you know, I grew up, in uh, Michigan, in a city called Kentwood, Michigan, and it was great. Um, I actually got a call from some of my friends, a midnight call from some East Coast friends I went to high school with. They surprised me and were, you know, asking me all this stuff and talking about all these memories we had. They were getting together during a blizzard. But when I was talking to them, I, I you know, I thought for a moment, I go, you know, I grew up in a, in a pretty much an all white community and I didn't go to church. I didn't like church. I couldn't stand church. Now I said all that about my grandmother, but I was a project that she was not able to, to conquer. Uh, but I, I did not, I, in the early part of my life, I lived in Kansas. I was in an African-American community, but after the age of seven, I was in an all white community. The reason I mentioned that is because, uh, my mother at one point, I think I was a sophomore in high school and I'm not sure I've ever told you this. She, uh, my mother put us in the suburbs in a, in the best school system that she could find, but she refused to teach there. And her reason was there were too many white kids and she wanted to teach black kids. And so she put us in the school and then she went and taught me in the urban area downtown. And so one day she came home and said, you don't have, you don't have any black friends or you don't have enough black friends. I go, okay. She goes, so I'm sending you to play basketball on the team downtown. I go, I don't want to go down there and play. I want to play with my friends out here. <laughs> and of course she said, this isn't a democracy. <laughs> I'm not running for election. You're going down there. So she dropped me off in the toughest part of Grants, Michigan called Campaw Park at the time and just dropped me off there. She knew the coach and she said, he'll meet you. And I got off this kid who did not, as I would learn, know anything mm -hmm. about my own culture. Right. And uh, what ended up happening was I got a great education and got better at basketball at the same time. Yeah. But nice jump shot you got. <laughs> when I think about you, I think about somebody who understands both sides of you with the railroad mm -hmm. tracks. You understand the diversity of society, but you understand the importance of communicating, um, you know, about uh, African-American life, black life. And so what I wanted you to just do, and we're going to get to some scriptures in a little bit, but I wanted you to start off by just letting people know what, what role do you think the black church and black history should play in helping us even understand our times today. Cause we've had a lot of consternation mm -hmm. within churches in society. And it seems like a lot of times people don't know how to talk about this subject together. Right. Uh, and right. so I want to just start off by asking you because of your, uh, your life and your mm -hmm. family legacy, which is rich. I, I first saw you, your dad. I didn't even know your dad was a basketball coach till I was reading on Facebook, the mm -hmm. post for either your brother's birthday or you remembering him. I can't remember. And I read uh -huh. the whole thing and I was like, how did I miss that? I'm sure you uh -huh. told me and it went over my uh -huh. head. Uh, yeah. but can you just start us off by just talking about that sort of freestyle for a minute and then we'll yeah. get more into some of this stuff. Yeah. First of all, great question. Um, I would say, you know, black history is important because history is important. I think just knowing history, right? Yeah. So uh, people have different lenses in which they view history. You know, right. They have national lens. I think we, we have a heavy dose of that here in America. We view everything from this 
European centric view of manifest destiny and new new world. Right. But from somebody else's perspective, it wasn't a new world, right? right. It, it, it all depends upon the the lens in which you view things. Right. So history to me is just reality. Uh, ah. God has, God has, um, really, he's the only one that knows true history because he sees a reality from his perspective. Right. Um, everybody else has this like a tunnel vision in terms of how they're going to view history. Of course, we know that whole phrase of, uh, you know, the, the writers are history of the victors or the, the, you know, or the, the people that who yes. are eventually end up as the champions of whatever society are the ones that normally record what happens. Yes. Which allows there to be a skewing of history. And mm-hmm. of course, I think that's what's happened within America, you know, in particular. Uh, black history is it's not as if black history is separate from history. It, right. it is just history that's not explained, that's not told, that's there. But the spotlight has not been on it. So therefore, uh, history can become a propaganda machine in order to facilitate the power of an oppressor. Black history is so helpful is because it can comfort people who need to be comforted in terms of looking for heroes or, you know, people who you can look up to. Sometimes we don't even know they're there. there, Right. We know a little bit more about history. Sometimes it can inspire us to especially for for people like myself like you it can inspire us to know that somebody else overcame right but there's there's also that part of black history though that's troubling it's that shocking part of, mm-hmm. of understanding a perspective that 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 humble reality that leaves us feeling troubled right when we discover the pain of history mm-hmm. but really those are all just reality it's just do we understand it? Do we see it? Do we talk about it? And is it a part of our knowledge bank? Knowledge is power and history is the key to have really unlocking that, that knowledge. I love it. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting is you were talking and you were talking about the European centric nature of, of, of American history, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think I want to also acknowledge that in black history month, I think black history month is really a way to create diversity uh, amongst uh, the entire population, for instance, Asian history. I think there's there's exactly. a, there's a there's an element of that that isn't celebrated or discussed enough. Latin Americans, and I think it's hard sometimes for. I grew up in in all American state, Michigan, and you know, and I'm I was made. I wanted to go into politics. I I was so loved mm-hmm. America and still do, but um, it's sometimes threatening or confusing for people to understand. That if America, in fact, is a melting pot, it's a, and, and if the churches are to reflect that melting pot mentality, then we have to learn how to say American history is is a dare I use this term a rainbow. It's a it's a collection of history that includes everybody. And there's no doubt that the founding fathers. I'm a big proponent of the founding fathers, despite the mm-hmm. flaws and the misjudgments or bad decisions that people may feel they'd made. It was a mirac- It was a miracle. Because to have a country with that free, you have to respect that that miracle took place. But to leave out the different stories, the stories mm-hmm. of women and the role they played, Abigail Adams mm-hmm. being one of my favorites, like Abigail Adams absolutely would have been a president if we had had a different kind of society back then. There's no doubt in my mind, probably Dolly Madison, too. But Black History Month, actually, 
Again, we'll go back to Michigan and my hometown, Grand Rapids. Gerald Ford was president of the United States. Gerald Ford comes from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was the one who actually made Black History Month an official period in the United States. And he said about that, that it is time that we included neglected parts of our history. And I thought that was important. Another thing is Louis Gates, who's written a book called The Black Church, uh, Henry mm-hmm. Louis Gates from Harvard. Uh, he records in that book that 24% of every every African-American on average has 24% of their blood being European. He makes mm-hmm. that point because he's saying that the masters ended up sleeping with the, the women and it wasn't consensual. And so children were born that, were mixed. And so every one of the African-Americans walking in, in the United States has 24% European blood. That's a story that needs to be told as well. So people can understand it wasn't just a little thing that happened with racism. It was a huge thing. One of the stories about Thomas Jefferson, and this is recorded in a tremendous number of books across a wide spectrum, is that when people would show up at his uh, Monticello, his mm-hmm. estate, his farm, they would be shocked that all the the slave kids look like him. And so I think there's a lot of that that doesn't get told. And and, and there are people out there who will think, well, this is political. You're talking about the 1619 project. I don't even, I don't care about that. I don't, I'm not even, I'm just talking about the fact that when you understand this kind of history and you look at it, then you'll be able to fast forward to today and understand why people have such a struggle that they feel still oppressed. And you can debate that on either side, but if you get history, like you said, you get a perspective Mm -hmm. and you can understand that. Now, to set us up and continue going into our questions, I wanna point out something. The church should be the answer to all of this. And I think sometimes when people talk about race in the church, they don't quote some very important scriptures and I wanna go through some Mm -hmm. for us. In 1 Corinthians 12, And in verse 12, it says the human in verse first Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, in the new living, it says the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we all share the same spirit. It's important that we understand when people talk about the Bible supports the idea of uh, of, of divided groups of people being in silos and not with each other, as was often said during the civil rights movement. And even today, the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning. That's not what the Bible teaches in Galatians three and verse 28. There's no longer Jew or Gentile slave or free male and female for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So the Bible is telling us that there's no longer slave or free that as far as God is concerned, this shouldn't exist. Now, people may say, well, why, why didn't God stop it? Well, God gives man free will, so he can yes. tell us what to do, but that doesn't mean we have to do it, and it doesn't mean he'll make us do it, but he tells right. us truth. And then in Colossians 3, in verse 10, it talks about putting on our new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, verse 11, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. And that's not a scripture that should be misused as history tells us to keep people in slavery. It's a scripture to say, there should not be the separation by race, by religious background. 
you should be able to live together. And finally, in 1 Timothy 1, in verse 9, we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers. Verse 10, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. What stands out to me in that passage is he talks about the fact that slave traders need the law, the law of God, that that's against the law of God. I think what gets confused is over the years, the Bible was used, and this is recorded in a lot of books of history about black history. The Bible was used actually to keep people into slavery. And we could talk about that later, but I wanted to set the table for all of us to understand that the Bible does not support slavery. I don't think that's true in any way, shape or form. And because it gives instructions to slaves about how to handle being a slave is not saying it is for slavery. That's my opinion from what I read. And so when I look at all of that, I say the church should be a place that is radically different than the world. But I think in order for people to understand that, I'm gonna jump right in because now I need you to help people understand. You have to understand why the black church needed to exist. Absolutely. And I think when you understand that, you'll understand that it wasn't that it, it wasn't that, oh, yeah, we just want to be separate from white people. One, black people weren't allowed to go. But two, right. it had a function in society. But you have the, the, the legacy of that. Talk for a minute yeah. about the black church. And we're just going to have a conversation now. OK. Uh, and and mo- we'll move our way all the way to the 21st century if we can. Right. You know, the black church or I would say, you know, black Christians or the the, the, the thought that blacks uh uh, embraced as, yes. a, as, a, as a people um, was a result of, let's say, in America in particular. Yes. When the uh, oppressor um, starts off by questioning the humanity of a black race, that's when you know it's a problem. Yeah. Even within our, our books, whether it's uh, just racist judges or, you know, uh, uh, or, or pronouncements from p- political uh, podiums. The, the saying that that black people are not even humans or even have a soul. That's what that's how far the debate went. It was, yes. Can black people actually have a, a, a soul? So when you start off like that, you, you just dehumanize mm-hmm. the the, the uh, uh, people just based on their skin color. Right. That's the bigger problem. So we've come a long way. So some slave owners actually felt like they needed to baptize. And they actually, blacks had a, a soul um, so that they actually reached out to them and converted them. But all along, there needed to be a black church because of segregation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, the whites uh, could not worship together with blacks. And even in the pro- most progressive situations, uh, the blacks would either have to sit up in a balcony or outside to kind of see if they can hear. It, it, this is a result of just slavery. Mm-hmm. But, but, but the white man, the white slave owner wanted his blacks, the, the blacks often to feel controlled so that they would allow there to be a, a preacher, a black preacher among them who could use the, the scriptures to kind of keep them in the same place or at least make them a little bit more docile. Mm-hmm. But this goes all the way back to the very beginning. Um, and uh, so the black church just came from that. Even when blacks were freed after the Emancipation Proclamation, um, even in 13th Amendment, the, the segregation kicked in where you couldn't even 
being the same building, drink from the same water fountain. So there, there had to be a black church. And right. I appreciate just the existence of blacks coming together for community. And I think there had to be a black church for dignity purposes as mm-hmm. well, just to feel less than, uh, to, to, to feel uh, more that, that you're human. Um, the, the independence from white control, the independence to gather together and to communicate, to laugh, to share, and to do community. These were, this, this um, necessitated the, the, uh, the, the gathering of blacks meeting by themselves. Right. So it is just a, a just a function of, of just faith. Uh, I know the blacks had a, a strong faith. They loved the book of Exodus. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why it was illegal to even teach a black to read. Right. Because some white masters felt like if they start reading the Bible, they're going to get to Exodus real quick and discover that <laughs> there is potential freedom. And uh, so that they outlawed actual um, um, blacks for even learning how to read. Yeah. So that they would not read the Bible. No, the Bible is liberating. God is liberating. And the black church is, is one of the great liberators uh, within society. Well, you know, it, it's interesting what you're talking about because, uh, and you can, and, and again, I'll um, actually probably put a list of books in the show notes for the podcast for those who are interested, because I think sometimes people want to read books that are current about what we should do regarding racism. And I'm mm-hmm. not against that, but I think mm-hmm. if we would go back in history and inform, I think people could draw their own conclusions. Uh, and I, I think a real important book of black church to read is the one I've mentioned by Henry Louis Gates, because he talks mm-hmm. about it in it, that the Anglicans came in the, um, I think 1701, right around there, they came to America as missionaries and their goal was we want to be able to, uh, save the souls of these slaves. And in that way, they were saying these people have souls, but the masters, the people who ran the plantations were very concerned because they felt like if you come in here and you teach these people about being Christians, one, they felt the church in Christianity was for whites alone. And it's important that we understand that historically, that, that that's not something I'm making up. That's not something coming out of my no. head. That's a historical fact. But what happened is the masters would only agree to let them help the slaves become Christians if they made sure that the slaves would remain docile and submissive. So the Anglicans feeling like, hey, we've got to save these, you know, savages and and that kind of thing. Because for a lot of people, they don't understand. And and I've I've written on this and studied this when I was in school because I studied religion, graduate work I did. And in doing that, you learn that a lot of the missionary mindset was to some degree condescending. These people out there are savages and we're going to civilize them with our Christianity. But the Anglicans had a good motive, but what they did is they began to include in their teaching to the slaves, the docility, the, mm-hmm. you, you sh- it's right for you to be a slave. That's the mm-hmm. thing you need to do. And some went as far as to say, you're the children of Cain and being black is the mark of Cain or some talked about Ham, the other, uh, the, the mm-hmm. son of Noah, who was supposed to be the uh, one over the slaves. He, he shepherded them. And so they're the children of Ham because of that. Uh, it gets pretty intense because what some people believe is that Cain 
uh, went to the land of Nod, which a lot of people who say the Bible know. And the land of Nod was where all the black people were. And so that was the the bad place to be. They were the ones who really weren't supposed to. Be. So there's there's for a lot of people who are wondering, you know, where does all that come from? It, there was a real effort to turn Christianity into something that made slavery good. And so in a sense, the black church was the only way to give Christianity to black people that allowed them to see it in its real way. And as you alluded to, once they discovered the book of Exodus, there was that aha moment of, wait a minute. <laughs> and I had a quote here uh, from the, the book I've alluded to, Henry Louis Gates' book on the black church. He quotes the Reverend Otis Moss III, who says, never confuse position with power. Pharaoh had a position, but Moses had the power. Herod had a position, but John had the power. The cross had a position, but Jesus had the power. Lincoln had a position, but Douglas had the power. Woodrow Wilson had a position, but Ida B. Wells had the power. George Wallace had a position, but Rosa Parks had the power. Lyndon Baines Johnson had a position, but Martin Luther King had the power. We have the power. Don't you ever forget it. Sermons like that allowed African-Americans to be able to hold up under the stultifying and oppressive yes. nature of racism. And so we're not talking, if someone's listening, we're not talking about everybody's racist and nobody no. cares about black people. We're saying it's a there's a rich, rich and powerful history here that explains how someone could go from being a slave to having educated children who now are functioning in society at a more successful rate. But what I want you to do is tell me your, a mm -hmm. little more about your personal story. Okay. Because I think that, that to me is full of inspiration and explanation about the power mm -hmm. of community. Well, I think I'm just so blessed and I owe God. I think that's kind of my, my uh, view of my life is I'm just a product of my family's faith. Um, just to let you know, I have uh, I grew up with both sets of my grandparents way into the uh, for my 40s. I had oh, really? both sets still alive. Right. Oh, so wow. and they both were strong, strong Christian families uh, growing up in the church. So my mom's side and my dad's side. So um, talking about the rich history. All I know is church. You know, I was one of those who went to church on Sunday for Sunday school. <laughs> for Sunday, for regular Sunday sermon. And then we would go back home, watch the Packers beat the Bears, and then go back to church that evening for Sunday night service and then Wednesday night service. And sometimes it'd be a gospel meeting taken up all, all, all week. Oh, wow. I, I just grew up in church. I, I grew up in church, but it was on both sides of my family. Wow. First of all, well, just to have two sets of grandparents married for 50 plus years, all their lives and have those images. And mm -hmm. then they, my own mom and dad uh, raising me in the faith and in the church. It is just, I'm just a product of, of their faith. Um, but, but even more than that, my grandfather was a pastor, a minister uh, of a church in, in Milwaukee. And my grandmother was one of the founding members of really what we can point back to now historically, that's probably the first ministry that was geared towards reaching African-Americans in the city or in, in the state of Wisconsin um, way back into the uh, the late 40s and, and the 50s. Really? So up, up, up to that point, the the within at least the Restoration Movement Churches of Christ, there really wasn't any black church or ministry 
Um, but my grandmother, and along with some other people, said, you know what, let's, let's start. They were going to this other church. But then this white minister, his name is Monroe Hawley, an incredible uh, minister, said, how about we start a work in a third ward, which is a predominantly African-American part of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, and there, right there in my grandmother's apartment was a Bible study group that eventually grew and became the church. So I have a rich history of, of the African-American church experience in the city of, of, uh, of the state of Wisconsin and the city of Milwaukee in yeah. particular. So that's kind of my, 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 uh, my faith background, my, which is interwoven within family background and, uh, and gave me a vision and a dream for myself. My grandfather wanted me, my, my grandparents wanted us to be preachers. I have an older brother as well. And he always gave us a vision to go into the ministry and we could be preachers. He never wanted us to take over his church. He always said, you know what, when you guys come back from college and things like that, you're going to be able to go and start your own church. Wow. So he always put that in the back of our mind all along. But there's one thing, uh, normally the normal ministry path for people would be to go to a, a school of preaching, a seminary, mm-hmm. uh, something like that. But I had an uncle that went to one of those schools and, he, and, and I'm, I'm a little kid. And when he came back, he just seemed to be a little bit more weird. <laughs> he says, Daryl, uh, I know Greek. I know, I know Hebrew. And I'm, I'm just a young teenager saying, well, remind me never to go to a preaching school because I'm just going to come back more weird like you talking, you know, like I know other languages and things like that. So I never really had it in my mind to want to go. Uh, and get formal training. So you found that weird. you found that unrelatable. It wasn't I thought it, unrelatable. It wasn't cool. I'm a hooper, right? Yeah, so it yeah. Just, it, it, it was just going to blow my groove, right? You know, <laughs> uh, blow my groove. And you're not you're not actually <laughs> saying anything about people going to preaching schools or whatever. You're talking about your personal experience. You're going, look, my, my personal own, experience. Yeah. Well, well the, the irony is I'm, I'm an, I sit on the board of trustees of a preaching school. So there you go. It, it, comes, <laughs> it comes full circle. <laughs> Excellent. So, so, but I still desire to want to minister in some kind of way. It was in my college years why, where I went off to school. And it's usually this is that, that, that critical faith moment when you leave the nest and you leave your family and you go to school. What do you do with your faith? The only church that was like the church I grew up in was this little, little white church in the outskirts of the city. And I was in Macomb, Illinois, a little small, little country town. In order to get there, I would have to walk about two miles to, to go to church. But I did because wow. it was my habit, right? I went to church in, you know, on, for Wednesday. I went to church on Sunday. I asked the basketball coach, can I, um, um, can I uh, not have practice on Sunday or at least have a little bit later so I yeah. could church? The minister even wrote a letter my basketball coach and Intense. saying, can Daryl be excused so he can come to church? But the church was all white and it was all country. And I was, it was, uh, it was really, people wore overalls. Some of the guys were just laborers. They had dirt underneath their fingernails. Yeah. They sung completely different. They talked differently than I did. It was, it was a shocking experience Interesting to, to go to that all white church. And here I am. Um, really a celebrity because I'm, I'm, I'm a starting point guard as even as a freshman on the basketball team. Whoa. And here, here I come into their church, spiritual, desiring yeah. God, wanting to grow. Um, and that experience was one of the turning points in my life because I saw the power of simplicity and I saw the power of love. I saw the power of the gospel mm-hmm. and how some of those external things really um, don't matter. 
when it comes to helping somebody grow in their faith. Because that little church pulled me in, they fed me, they loved me. Wow. And my faith skyrocketed then. And then one of the stories that happened, even my faith story was one of the ministers uh, came to me and said, Daryl, I would like to actually start a little small group Bible study in your dorm room. And, uh, and, and I totally forgot. So on a Thursday night, he came to one of the dorms. <laughs> it was like about, and that is one of these tower dorms. I lived on the 17th floor. Mm-hmm. And of course we didn't have cell phones back then. So he, he called me up from downstairs and says, Daryl, I'm here. But ready to have that small group Bible study, and I totally forgot, and I panicked, and so I told my roommate, his name was Homer. He was from Iowa. I said, "Homer, you can't leave. Stay right here. Um, <laughs> we're gonna have a Bible study." And then I went up and down the hall, and I told all my friends to get in my room real quick. We're about ready to have a Bible study. It was basketball players, football players. By the time he got, we actually had to go to the common area um, to have our first Bible study. So. Before that, he got to the 17th floor. I had a room full of people ready to hear uh, my minister share a Bible study. And then he said, next week, Daryl's going to do the same thing. (laughs) I said, what? (laughs) And then then what I I saw, what happened, though, was he just opened up the Bible, talked about Jesus, made a couple applications. He read from a version that was not hard to understand. Yeah. And I saw what happened. People were intrigued. And then from that one little Bible study group, uh, a campus ministry was born. And but I, eventually, I was able to go into the ministry. They hired me as an intern, um, and that it just took off. We had just uh, what sometimes we have almost hundred people in the, in the student union, right? Coming to Bible studies, basketball players, football players, people just they just came flocking, right? And that's when I got the vision that you know I don't have to necessarily know Greek at least at that time, since then, I've been really studying all these languages mm-hmm. um, to have an impact on people's life. And I also saw the power of the gospel of how it transcends race, that uh, it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. We all have the exact same needs within. Mm. So, um, you know, we all have the same problem. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. We have the same problem, and we all are desperately needing the exact same solution that's found in the evidence as a Christian and faith in Jesus Christ. So that framed my my world, my, right. my, that pictured world. Growing up in an all African American situation with strong family members, mm-hmm. so I had a foundation. But then going to a completely different culture and seeing God uh, change me. And then give me vision for what a simple Bible study can do in a heart of, of, of anyone. Yeah. So I think so what's, interesting, kind of, what's interesting about your story is one, I think that um, for, depending on pe- where people are from, it's, you're talking about multi-decade marriages in your family, yes. grandparents, parents. You're talking about a strong family uh, a center. And a lot of times people who I remember when I went to Hong Kong to speak for my best friend, Scott Green, who's passed away years ago. Uh, he said, I want you to come to Hong Kong and speak because uh, people here in Hong Kong think most black people are criminals. And I go, oh, I, well, why is that? He goes, because he said, well, they the only news they get is CNN International. And it's usually some crime that's being committed uh-huh. by black people that shows. And so they think that, and I said, you really? So I went there and I spent, I don't know how long I was there, multiple days or wow. part of a week. And I talked to a number of people and I spoke a few times and they came up to me. Some of them came up to me and goes, 
I had no idea there were black people like you, you know, that like that, that were educated or whatever. And so sometimes one of the issues I think that comes up in churches is people either don't have experience with mm-hmm. another ethnicity or color. They're not, they, have, they don't have experience with Asians. I certainly didn't growing up in Michigan. They don't have experience with anybody Latin. And then we make, we get these stereotypes in our head or these caricatures and we think they're real. And so it's important, I think, that during Black History Month, people understand it's not just talking about the Nat Turners and the Frederick Douglasses and the Martin Luther Kings of yesteryear, but it's talking about the Daryl Reeds of today whose families are not riddled with some of the caricatured statements that, well, you know, black families are only single mothers. Black families are only poor. Uh, you know, there's, uh, it, it, and I think it's important that, that, that that be known and understood. And then to watch you now, as I hear you talk about church, I was the opposite. I, 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 mm-hmm. I stayed away from church. I ran from it. Didn't want to be a part of it. <laughs> thought it was ridiculous in college. I was in my dorm room and I went, I was at Boston university. And so I, I was in my dorm room and we were all talking and, um, Somebody said, hey, does anybody believe in God? I, I think they were asking that legitimately, like, this, this is a curious subject. And they were, and we, everybody went around and kind of said what they thought. I said, I think I'm an agnostic. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I, I, I don't know. And it, my view of Christians was they're not great athletes. They're not great academics. They're, and those were two important things for me. Uh, and they're not very cool and they're unrelatable. And why would I do that to my life? And the only value religion has to me is I want to go into politics. And so I know I'll probably have to pick one. And so I sat down and went at the time I was at a school with, with a lot of Jewish friends and, and I worked for the Hillel, which was the mm-hmm. Jewish uh, cultural center of the campus. And, and so I thought about Judaism and I was like, that, that I kind of respect that. And I, I respect the people I see in it, but it, then I read and I studied, I went, well, the, the number of Jewish people is too small for me to get elected everywhere. And so then I went, wait a minute, the Catholics, the Catholics, there's a lot of Catholics. I go, maybe I need to be cat. So that's how I saw religion. So to hear you talk about it and the rich part of it. And of course your starting point guard as a freshman. I now have concluded a couple of things. One, if I had been more spiritual, I would have played college basketball. So now I understand the problem, <laughs> but no, uh, I, I think it's important that, that even you understand that your story while familiar to you is not familiar to a lot of different people. And it's, it's just like living in the Bay area. One of the cultures I enjoy the most is the multifaceted Asian culture, whether it's Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Filipino, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, uh, that, that, and not just the food, I'm not talking about that, but the way of life, the spirituality. Yes. And I think when you're able to meet people and that's why church is so important, and yes. I'm, I'm going to dive right into diversity here. That's why diversity is so important. And one of the yeah. things that strikes me is you went to a church that was rural as an mm-hmm. African American from, you know, a significant city, Milwaukee. And Mm -hmm. you were able to say, I'll walk two miles and I'll sit and I'll listen to people who I'm going to make a little bit of a judgment here. Don't understand me culturally, really don't maybe know how to how to how to interact with me on a social way that would be more natural for someone from a bigger area, bigger city with with more diversity. But it worked, and as you said, it worked because it was spiritual. But here's what I would ask the question about. Mm-hmm. Today, in the 21st century, and not everybody has your good heart, 
Okay. <laughs> so not everybody had that. I, I think it's really important that churches take a look at a couple of things. If you have a lot of churches and you don't have Asian leaders who lead the whole church, if you don't have mm-hmm. uh, Latin leaders who lead the whole church, if you don't have black leaders who lead the whole church, then what happens is, and I'm going to be just very straightforward here, then uh-huh. it becomes difficult for people to really have diversity because diversity doesn't happen just because you have people in the pews of mm-hmm. all races and ethnicities. Diversity mm-hmm. happens when the people up front represent a, a variety of groups. And what I have noticed is that there's, you know, I've, I've, li- I've listened to some people during the stretch here where, you know, people are sort of having an awakening about Black Lives Mattering, which I'm glad they are. But I kind of thought that a while ago, you know, when I was growing up, I was like, hey, my life right. matters. And, you know, <laughs> exactly. and so I, I'm glad I'm glad. And, and I know some people will be offended by that, but I'm glad people are doing that. But the thing is, I think that the real test is, are you in a church that is willing to say we ought to have an African-American leader, not as the mm-hmm. assistant, not as the background player, but as the actual leader? Or are you in a church that's willing to have an Asian as the actual leader, even if your congregation is predominantly white or even predominantly black or whatever it may be? Mm-hmm. Are you willing to have somebody who's a different race be up front. Cause I don't think diversity can happen just because when you take the photo, there's a lot of, there's a few different people sprinkled in. Exactly. I, I ran for student council in an all white, pretty much predominantly white school. And my mother told me, Oh, I don't think you should do that. Uh, I go, why not? She goes, cause white kids aren't going to elect a black kid to be the president of their school. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew my friends and I, mm-hmm. I may have been deluded, but I knew my friends and I was like, ah, you know, I think I can do this. And uh, I did win. But that was a case where, and I respect the city I grew up in, where mm-hmm. kids went, no, that's not true. We're, mm-hmm. we're more than willing to do that. But I see sometimes in churches, there's a patronizing of the idea of Black Lives Mattering because people are not ready to say, hey, you know, we've had, you know, this guy lead and that guy lead. But the people making the decisions are never of color. And so I, right. I, I just think when a Black History Month, it's great to talk about black history. It's great to talk about Black Lives Mattering. But I, I think the most important thing is if, if you don't ever have African-Americans as leaders of corporations, and we do, if they never become president or senator or congressman, if they never become you know the head of small businesses, then you haven't gotten it done. And, and people may say, well, these people have to earn the right. Okay. I, I'm obvious. I'm totally into earning the right. I've been trying to earn the right. right all my life, but you also have to have receptivity to the idea that there is no diversity unless right. you're willing to say the persons making the decisions can be of that color. And I know in the seventies and eighties, when I was coming up and first became a Christian, I don't think that was understood and I'm not sure it's understood now. I don't want to put you in an awkward position, but what do you think about no. that? Well, I would say uh, what has been, you know, the writer Ecclesiastes says, uh, has been done before. Um, there was nothing new under the sun. And you can go all the way back to the beginning of the church to see this dynamic, right? right? So here's Jesus. He gets these Galileans. He trains them for the ministry. And then he, he 
all throughout his ministry, he's, he shows this care of the Gentile. He reaches out to them, but they're all Jewish. He even commissions them <laughs> as his final words, says, go, uh, go make disciples of all nations. And that word nations there is ethnos, or this is where we get the word ethnicity. So Jesus trains these guys. He charges them. He sets an example about loving everyone. Even the parable of the Good Samaritan, is, it highlights uh, a Gentile. Right. He says, go make disciples, all nations. Don't hold back. Start there in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You know, they didn't do it because of deep-seated um, biases, stereotypes, right. and racism. Right. Peter, the one who had the keys. Right. Peter, Jesus gave the keys uh, to Peter, unlocked the doors to the kingdom. And Peter struggled with prejudice against the Gentiles. This was deep rooted. Um, and this is having Jesus as your disciple, your mentor, your teacher. It took God to give Peter a vision to really personally have a personal one on one visit with him to say, Peter, don't call anything I've made unclean if i've made it clean it's clean right and then right there at the door the story is told in acts chapter 10 the first gentile comes knocking and saying you know what um we would like to hear what you have to say to us but just think about how uh the, the struggle is real let's just say that the right. struggle of overcoming biases prejudices superiority thinking that's deeply seated within us. It's not just going to take uh, just a surface attention. It's going to take some intentionality to dig deep, to discover and uncover our hidden racism and biases. And, and uh, this is where we have to be humble and learn. If Peter had to be rebuked and had to learn, and he is the, 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 the you know, the, you know, the, the apostle Jesus gave the keys to Jesus' right. best friend. How much more um, do we need to learn that? You know, the problem of uh, prejudice and discrimination and superiority in the Bible was not necessarily connected to color as much as connected to the racial category of Jew and Gentile. But right. that same parallel can be seen today. So I would say to different brothers and sisters who, who struggle with a superiority mindset in terms of um, I'm better than nobody comes out and says that. But if we just intuitively just look at how we were raised, the environment we were around, what we saw in television, what we've heard all of our lives, we have to basically admit at least society has influenced me to have a negative opinion right. of African-American. And then we have, so in order to overcome that, there has to be a greater intentionality to want to know God's perspective on things. And it's, and it's same same thing within uh, be, being in the oppressed group. Um, um, I, I don't preach against white supremacy as much as I try to empower people and preach uh, for uh, preach against black inferiority. Right. Because I think some of these things just won't come out of the heart unless God does a surgery uh, on, on the inside of a human being. And that's something only God can do. Yeah. And that's something that only God can do if someone desires to be like God or love like God. Yeah. My, you know, my experience transformed by God, my experiences, and you were referring to Galatians too, and the pressure that was brought to bear on Peter when Peter was, Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles. He was having a good time. Uh -huh. I don't know if he's eating barbecued ribs or what, but he was having a good time. <laughs> 
and uh, then uh, the, yeah, and, but then all of a sudden the uh, the 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 Jewish you know uh, uh, folks showed up, and and as we talk about being Jewish, I think it's important to understand this is not about anti-Semitism because that's a historical no. thing, and in Christianity, it's about different cultures and different groups within an, an organization, and I think that that's how you have to think about it because that's how God wants us to think about it. But mm-hmm. I think sometimes there, even a, a a great leader like Peter can be subject to the peer pressure of, hey, you shouldn't be accepting these people. You shouldn't be yes. letting these people in. Um, I, you know, and, and I think it's an uncomfortable conversation. I'm not a person who believes that all white people are racist or uh, or whatever. I, I don't I don't buy into that. I think people need education and I think people need relationship. And unless you know somebody, you, you're going to and you can be that way about anybody. You know, I didn't grow up in rural America. Well, my wife says I grew up in rural America, actually. But I, I went to school in Boston, so maybe I separated myself from it. But when I look at rural America, I go, well, that's not a familiar thing to me. And so I have mm-hmm. some presumptions, assumptions about a person in rural America, how they might think or how they might be. And they're oftentimes wrong. Um, and I think what we have to do, I think, is understand one, the world has changed. We're in the 21st century. So mm-hmm. I actually think the millennial generation, generation Z, generation X, these generations are done with all that. So the, a mm-hmm. lot of the question comes, will the baby boomers and the older generation X understand that regardless of what you do, like I always find it fascinating when I'm talking to kids in the Bay Area, which has a population of African-Americans, it's probably below 8% now or around 8%. Mm-hmm. I always find it fascinating when I run into kids who are white particularly and their favorite music top to bottom is rap and 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 African American rap artists, which I don't deny that that's that's a that's a powerful cultural force in America today. And yeah. oftentimes people are like what in the world, you know, with, with with depending which which person you listen to, you may wonder what in the world's going on, you know, Kendrick Lamar performed at the Super Bowl and when I was watching, I sat there and wondered, I go, I wonder what people who are unfamiliar with Kendrick Lamar are thinking about that right now because it was yeah, one yeah. of the great performances at a Super Bowl. But yeah. I just he 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 lyrically is so complex and deep and and edgy. Um, and, and prolific and profound, right. which is why he got his uh, Nobel prize, uh, or, uh, for, uh, for art like Bob Dylan. They're the only two musicians. I think it's the, I think it's the Nobel. Well, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. They're the only two musicians to ever win it. Bob Dylan and Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> but when you listen to it, you go the ability, and I'm not a big rap fan. Okay. Right. But the ability to listen to something that you don't have an education with, you don't have a familiar with that's the beginning of understanding and knowing whether or not your mind is open to the idea of a multicultural environment. I believe that there are essentially three kinds of people in America today and maybe in the world. There's monocultural, bicultural and multicultural monocultural people whose only friends are their race, whose only experiences are their art, their food, their music. Bicultural people have had some exposure to another culture. They can actually talk, communicate, and feel comfortable uh-huh. in two cultures. You know, so it could be black and Latin. It could be white and black. It could be Asian and white. It could be whatever. And then multicultural are people who are, they're comfortable and have dexterity in every culture they kind of come in contact with. And even if they've mm-hmm. not been familiar with it, they make themselves familiar with it. And to me, the scripture on that is 1 Corinthians 9. 
I become a Jew to the Jews. I become someone without the law to those without the law. Mm-hmm. I become weak for the weak. In other words, it, Paul was a multicultural guy who you throw him into any room and he's, he's ta- if, he, if you're talking about Kendrick Lamar, I can, I can do that. If you're talking about Josh Groban, I, I can do that. If you're talking about James Brown, I can do that. If you're talking right. about Bruce Springsteen, I can do that. I can talk about anybody and love it at all. And I think sometimes as Christians, we don't understand it's the power of creating diverse churches that allows us to continue. And this is a, I'm going to draw a conclusion, the legacy of the black church, because the black church, in my view, and I actually wrote on this in college, okay. the the okay. black church's purpose was both uh, social, spiritual, and political, but in many ways was to give opportunity to black people to marshal their talents and overcome this sense of inferiority to be able to make the contributions that, that God had made them capable of making. Absolutely. I think what should be happening is every church should have a mindset that I want to give every white person, every Asian person, every black person, every Latin person, et cetera, et cetera, every opportunity to marshal all their talents. And if you can't create a culture where anybody can be in it, then you're in a monocultural church. And if you're in a monocultural church, you're not going to be able to help the most people possible. Or you may be in a multicultural church where black and we're white, but that's not going to reach. You have to be in a, or bicultural churches, black and we're white, we're Asian and we're Latin, but you have to be in a multicultural church to change the world. If you look at the statistics, I think a recent statistic I saw was Scott Galloway. He's one of my favorite thinkers. I think it's like it used to be that ninety percent of people had a connection to a Christian church or win or whatever. It's now mm-hmm. forty. It's now forty-seven percent. I think that's a directly attributable to the fact that when people go to church, they don't see people that look like them. They don't see people mm-hmm. that talk like them. They don't see people that understand them. So as we talk about Black history and Black, uh, the Black Church, I think we're really talking about the possibilities that exist for giving underserved parts of the community, uh, ostracized parts of the community, women. You know, that's a big Mm -hmm. deal. Can women be part of that diversity? I believe they can. And there's a lot of confusion and you have a very strong wife and strong leader. So you Uh already know about that. I know she's in charge and and that's the bottom (laughs) line. And both of us were sent here by our wives and and they prepared us for this time. (laughs) But (laughs) I I, I think I feel pretty strongly that, 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 I don't, I'm not saying every church, no, that no church can be black or Asian. That's not my, really my point. I think people have to pick and build the way they build. Mm-hmm. But if you want to reach the maximum number of people, if you want to mm-hmm. reach, you know, we have 8 million people essentially in the Bay Area. You're pretty up there in the D.C. area if you can exclude the yeah. whole, you know, 95 Beltway yeah. thing with Virginia right. and Maryland and, and D.C. I think churches have to ask the question, am I really building a church that can reach everybody. And mm-hmm. and that's just one of the things on my mind and I think that's, is that's important. Good. What do you think? Well, I would say that's that's so on point. And, and even as we define church, it's going to come down to community. Ah. It's going to come down to the pockets of an area. Okay, good. Uh, even, so, so even within, let's say, uh, met- our large metroplex, uh, the, the DMV, the DC regional area, right? there's still pockets of uh, of the city that I'm probably not the most gifted person to reach. Oh, good point. Because because uh, I might sound differently. They could t- okay. You're obviously not from around here. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Um, so we're gonna need just people to reach people uh, within their own communities, um, and then that's the church. I, li- I like to say the community that you can fit within your house 
or a gathering that where you know everybody's name, that's the kind of functioning unit of community that got everything started. I love it. Now, if those communities can partner together with broader communities, mm-hmm. so whenever they get together in a big giant stadium yeah, or a yeah. big convention center, then you see the diversity. That's different. But uh, the leaders have to do that. So, so the leaders have to, have to be connected relationally. And then that mindset, that heart set, uh, will, will permeate even communities uh, within a, a smaller geography, a geographical section. Uh, I just have a, this mindset. I used to be critical of the, the church because you know that, that I grew up in because mm-hmm. it was all black. But then thinking back, looking back mm-hmm. on the church that I grew up in, I was like, well, you know what? <laughs> it's an all black side of town. <laughs> yeah, it's you know to, for me to judge them by saying, well, how come? You guys don't have Asians or this. Well, that's because it's a local church. Beautiful. However, when that the the, the issue, though, I think God's going to judge is what's the heart set behind that leader? And God's going to be the one that really is going to be able to identify. Is there racism there? Is there defensiveness there? Is there exclusivity there? Is there uh, 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 a stereotypical sense of we we don't want other people? Right. Or is there a. to connect with a broader body mm-hmm. of Christ. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I think when we look at the body of some Rick Warren said this one time, he said it's gonna take all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. Oh, I love it. Which so I thought that that statement was is freeing for me because it allowed me to embrace who I am and to not feel like I'm deficient in my ability because I'm not as effective with this particular community. Good. Um I, I, I've, I've let that go. I probably had that in the first part of my ministry. Right. But now I'm just like, you know what? I just want to reach everybody. Now, I, I'm not limiting the power of the gospel. I'm going to share with somebody who's homeless and somebody who's, who I think is, you know, a politician, somebody yeah. who is Asian or a Latino. Even if I can't speak their language, I'm trying to give them some material. But I think that's what God wants. He wants to know what's the heartbeat of that leadership. And if that leadership team has that heartbeat, God's spirit will connect the dots and help a local congregation. I love what you're saying. Commission. I love it. Um, so and what that did for me was it launched me to embrace who I am as mm-hmm. a leader mm-hmm. and the specialty of my leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a natural bent towards young people who hoop. <laughs> uh, that's that's kind of, I, I wonder why. That's my kind of sweet spot okay. in terms of who I, who I prefer to reach out to, who right. I would desire to connect with. I'm a coach. So I love grabbing people and coaching them up and inspiring them. Uh, but somebody else is completely different. Yep, They have to embrace their uniqueness and understand how they have a specific ministry assignment within the, uh, the, the, the community at large as well. But when we all get together, um, I should be able to connect especially leaders, we should be able to connect with anybody and everyone. And if you have a larger church uh, uh, sphere of influence, that we have to in, that much more intentionally invite our pulpit to uh, show that kind of diversity or whoever's on stage to show that kind of diversity. Russ, you were one of those for me. I mean, that's why I remember uh, changing over to more of a, a discipling, uh, evangelistic congregation. I, I made a switch, but I remember going to Boston in the 80s and then I saw you up there. That was, I didn't know who you were, but it inspired me. It inspired me. Like, you know what? Here's this Boston Gardens 
multiracial, multicultural assembly of, of uh, believers. And here's this black man up there just leading songs, fired up. And then when you said that you had a class that you were going to be teaching um, that was going to be preparing people to possibly go to Africa, man, me and my brother, we signed up for that. We said, <laughs> you know what, let's, let's, let's go to Russ Ewell's class. It, it, but it was just the picture of who you were, mm-hmm. to see you communicate, to see your conviction. Sometimes it's just that example that could trigger mm. uh, uh, somebody else to, to keep on going. Uh, but that only happens if we put ourselves in the environment to be vulnerable enough to to be used by God. What so, I love about what you're saying is, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, learn, I'm learning from you, and I want to make a point of that, is mm-hmm. that on many occasions, there are gifts and even genetic predispositions that yep. put us in a place where we uniquely can reach a certain group of people. Yes. Um, I, I was an agnostic, so it's probably why a lot of the time I think about people who don't believe and don't like church and don't want to have anything to do with it. And so I think I come from that as the academics say that situatedness. And what you're saying is, uh, we, we want diversity, but it doesn't mean someone doesn't want diversity if their church is all Asian or if their church is all black, because it may depend on the language they're going to speak. It may depend on the part of the country they're in. And they just have to make sure they're examining to say, are we doing this to be exclusive or are we doing this because we believe this is our unique contribution to being able to advance what God is trying to do? And I love that because I do. I'm in a big church. That's where I go to church. For those listening, I go to a bigger church. It's metropolitan. It's it's everywhere in all these different places that are all different races and all that. But if I, I, I used to be. Uh, at different, I was in DC for a while, as you know, but I, I, I wasn't at one point in Dorchester, Massachusetts. And when I was there, we had a mixed group, but it was more black and white. It, there was, that mm-hmm. was, that was it. And it's cause that's who was there. Uh, I worked in Roxbury mass for a while and that was pretty much black. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I get your point. And I think this goes to probably back to the black church idea that whether it's uh, an Asian church or a black church, sometimes you need a church in that community that does the job for that community. And then it's going to get us diversity by partnering with or connecting with other groups. And I, I'm, lear- exactly I'm learning right. that from you because the average church. That's in, exactly right. Yeah. The average church uh, so in America I, is 75 people. So it's not going to be like the church where I'm at. So that that's a really good point. I remember I learned this lesson where um, my, uh, my buddy Carlos and I were talking to, we, we had a situation where we were studying the Bible with somebody who was ex-con. He was a murderer. Um, at least he confessed to murder. And, you know, some drug dealers. And we were like puzzling. We were like, man, how do we reach this part of the city? We were like, what do we do? Do we have to? So we, 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 we talked to one of our, our Baptist minister friends. And uh, he says, Daryl, Carlos, why are you guys trying to do that? Somebody else is more uniquely qualified. Wow. To reach that guy. So that shook, shook us because we had this pressure that we have literally got to be a church that can minister to every single population need within this metropolitan area. And it was causing too much stress, too much pressure because that's not, it wasn't our natural bent. It wasn't our natural fit. But when we start, when we step back, we step back and we said, you know what, there's other people who are doing a great job already. How about we partner with other people who are already ministering 
And we still have a desire to have our own local influence within that part of the uh, ministry assignment. But let's let's see what God is doing outside of our local church. Mm-hmm. And, and let's partner with other people. And then that way um, we can appreciate other people's uniqueness. And yeah, you can learn, you can learn from them. Absolutely. I I think, uh, I think for those listening who are not, if you've made it this far in the podcast, for those listening who have not, who don't consider themselves to be religious, maybe agnostic, and maybe you're hearing a lot of going, man, this is a lot of church politics, a lot of complexity. Not really. What it is, is just the same kind of organizational behavior that has to take place Mm -hmm. in Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies, because everybody Mm -hmm. has to deal with it. And sometimes you're putting a, a branch of your company, if you're Microsoft or you're Apple, you're putting a branch of your company in Japan. Well, if you're putting a branch of your company in Japan, that company has to be shaped and built differently than if you're putting it in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or Grand Rapids, Michigan. And that makes a lot of sense. And we can learn a lot from organizations that are not Christian because they have to deal with these issues and and navigate them. And sometimes they navigate them better than churches mm-hmm. navigate them because they're not as guided by their emotions as they are by the dollar. And sometimes the dollar produces great rationality and logic, <laughs> you know? Um, the thing that I walk away from this, and it's, it's it, we could go on and on and on, the thing I walk away from this time understanding, and, and we decided, you and I decided we would, we would, we would wander about and let whatever come mm-hmm. up, come up. If someone's listening and wondering, what should I get out of it? What you should get out of it is not whether I'm right or Daryl's right. You should get out of it how to have a conversation, how to have a conversation that appreciates black history, how to have a conversation that appreciates black churches, how to have a conversation that takes the lessons and the experiences of our life and applies them to now and really how to understand, I think, how to dream. One of the things that Henry Louis Gates talks about in his book, The Black Church, is that the black church, some people wonder if it didn't do more to hurt African-Americans than it did to help because it taught docility and it taught submission and it taught weight. And he says, well, you know what, if you look at the wide uh, spectrum of what accomplished, there's no question that what the black church allowed is the black culture to never die. Mm. And when all the forces came against it, it was the black church that mobilized for civil rights for the the voting acts of 64, 65. Uh, it was the black church that 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 allowed leaders like um, if you go back as far as Nat Turner, as you go back as far as Frederick Douglass, if you come up to Martin Luther King, and even if you look at Barack Obama, and though his connection to his church was, you, you know, sort of politically controversial, it was him trying to find his way spiritually and figure out what do I think about all this that influenced him. And I think that's important to remember. In the same way, I think for people that are Asian, for people that are Aladdin. I think it's important that 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 those voices be heard. And in Black History Month, I think it's symbolic because blacks were made slaves and were oppressed like no other group other than perhaps the Jews during the Holocaust. Um, and it's important that in a month like February, every year we take the time to say, you know what, we recognize that we see it and we want to know more. But at the same time, we also can recognize, oh, we don't know much about Chinese New Year, which happens to occur in the Black History Month. And so maybe we should be thinking about Chinese Americans and what their culture is and what they're like. Uh, and so I, I, I learned this from this conversation. I learned also that it's important for someone like me to remember that the average church in America is 75. So demanding that that church be multicultural and have all these sophistications when it may be in an area that's pretty much one race or one language that's unreasonable and perhaps irrational. The key is for them to find their niche and work that niche, but remain open-hearted to anybody, just like that church that grabbed you 
uh, back yes. in the day that was very different than you, but produced an explosion of spirituality because of the love, the care, the concern, and the vision they had for you. And so when I come down to this all, what I think about, Daryl, and what you made me think about today is dreaming. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, Langston Hughes uh, lived 1901 to 1967, one of the great poets and writers of our country, an African-American who wrote in, in difficult times, wrote this, hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is broken winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. And I think it's important for us listeners to remember mm -hmm that ultimately black history is about dreaming, beaten down, oppressed, kicked to the side, lynched, beaten, raped, pillaged, held back. Like a phoenix, they rose like my grandmother, like your grandparents. Uh, and as a result, people like you and I were able to get college educations and, and do more to make America better uh, instead of you know wallowing in the defeats of the past. If you're out there today and you're thinking about these things, go back and read Ephesians chapter two, verse 11, 18. It'll show you even more about the citizenship diversity that exists in the church. And for all of us out there who are wondering why are so much fewer people going to church, maybe you can take some nuggets from this that we've learned from Daryl, the things that I've shared about diversity, about specialization, about niches that help us understand a lot more people's lives will be made better by Christianity. Not that we're against all the other religions, but it's Christianity uniquely changed and made possible life for African-Americans today. And we have an inspired legacy of Booker T. Washington, James H. Cohn, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, so many others. Daryl, thank you so much for being on Despirituality. And uh, we hope all Love of it. you listen, enjoyed our conversation. Uh, and uh, don't forget to go to deepspirituality.com to get more information. Go to the show notes in case you're living in the D.C. Uh, metropolitan area. You can actually uh, be able to, uh, I think for the rest of February, they're still uh, you're still using your live stream, right, Daryl? Uh, in yes. February, but then in March, you're going to start probably going to in-person services. Start together. So mm -hmm. we'll put a link in our show notes if you're interested in joining Daryl uh, and getting a chance to see him in person. I can verify that his basketball skills are incredible, and I, I now have complete regrets that I didn't turn to God earlier because I might have been in the NBA, but I'll just have to live with disappointment. Uh, again, thanks, Daryl. 